Hey everybody, welcome to the 79th episode of the JDO Show. I am your host, J. David Osborne, and today on the show I have Matthew Rivera on, one of my best friends in the entire world. I could do 800 podcasts with this guy and they'd all be good because we, uh, we just get along. But uh, then again, now that I think about it, there's probably not very many people who don't get along with Matt. And if you don't, I feel like you probably have to figure out what's wrong with you. Matt wrote a book recently called Human Trees. It is available to purchase on Amazon. It is a Broken River book. It is a collaboration between myself and him. I say collaboration, but... That's kind of a weird word for it because Matt wrote the book. The book is basically as he wrote it. I read this thing a year and a half, two years ago. It's been through a lot of ups and downs uh, with different publishers and, you know, different people putting their hands on it. Um, And eventually I, I, I said to him, why not just do it on Broken River? And it was like a light bulb clicked. Like, whoa, hey. Not a bad idea. So we put it out about, um, gosh, what was it, like two weeks ago now? And it's doing very well. I'm very happy with it. Matt's very happy with it. And we got together to talk. And he actually, he kind of interviews me a lot in this one, which is sort of an interesting flip. But I think you'll enjoy it. I think that... uh, Our conversation is always great. Please do go check out Human Trees on Amazon. It's a a very strange book, but one that I like very much. Please enjoy this 79th episode of the JDO Show with Matthew Rivera. Oh yeah, you sound good. Of course you sound good. Just making sure, my friend, just making sure, because I had to invent a new password that I never used before and mm. I'm never going to remember it. I'm never being able to log on to Skype again after this. Oh, dude, I used to have the same issues as you. Um, I actually started a folder, or not a folder, but a, a, a file in my notes program that's literally all of my passwords because I used to have the same thing for everything and then I thought to myself, this is a really fucking stupid idea, but then when I started changing all my passwords, I did not document them at all so this is my shameful story about that i had a similar folder and i had the bright idea to password protect it and i forgot (laughs) the password oh the glorious irony oh is that irony i don't know it's it's pretty ironic i mean let's be honest yeah yeah i think that um it's really weird. No, I, I, have a, I have a basic rule about irony. Mm-hmm. If Alanis Morissette wouldn't sing about it, then it's probably ironic. Right, right. Yeah, no, exactly. But the, the thing is, is it's also... I, I get so funny about stuff like that because on the one hand, yes, words do mean things. Um, and it's fun to point out when they're used incorrectly. But on the second hand, I guess the other hand, that would be... Um, I also, I'm, I'm very much an approximationist when it comes to language. You know what I mean? Like, if you, if, if I get the intent, then I'm okay. So it's kind of like Mondegreen. If you sing the wrong lyrics for a song, but it sounds right, then it's still right. Exactly. Exactly. Because, I like it. I mean, if you think about it, how much of what we say is actually 
I don't know, what we mean, or important, or anything. You know, most of it's just sounds. Well, I don't know if I've ever said anything worth hearing. <laughs> I don't know about that. I just I just reverted to um, primary school. For, you, you would call it elementary school, but in Australia, it's primary school. And in primary school, I had a lot of trouble pronouncing my THs. Uh-huh. I used to have to go to this um, these special classes. Uh, it wasn't like an ongoing thing that went for, for years, but it was just like a couple of classes where they tried to teach a few of us how to pronounce TH. And when I was talking to you just then, I realized that I pronounced my TH like I used to when I was six. Which is how? Like... With an with a hard F instead of a oh, TH. Oh, okay, okay. So, well, hey, I guess I should formally thank you. I I guess call recorder now just starts recording automatically. So, uh, that's all recorded. I hope you don't mind. But um, here we I are. I love it. Here we are. So, thank you so much for being on my podcast. This is, this is number two, but it's number three, kind of, because you are on I, the deep yes. cuts. You are on the deep yes. cuts. Yes. I, I. This is number three. In terms of us recording. Uh, ramblings number three but in terms of the podcast as it's branded number two. <laughs> oh yeah that's so funny yeah branding is so weird man it's so crazy <laughs> i just i i i realized i don't know i had a very i feel like um sort of immature reactionary way of thinking about branding right basically said things to the effect of branding's gross bro I've never, but then <laughs> I realized that for the past 10 years, I have very much been branding myself, just kind of like some, it's all, like if you, if you act in a certain way and you want to be perceived in a certain way and you act accordingly, you're kind of branding. Well, I mean, we, we, we often approach it from the um, direction of, of somebody making something that will hopefully be purchased. And, and, and that is certainly branding involved but i mean in day-to-day life we all brand ourselves let's be honest it's how we we form the identity we want to be seen can i ask you a question man i'm curious about this and this is kind of out of left field but i feel like it might be a good place to start what what does your day-to-day life consist of because let, let me preface that by saying most of our conversations whether they're on skype or via facebook messenger we tend to get into pretty heavy shit right away, and we both know a lot about our lives, but I don't think I've ever really asked you, what do you do on a typical day? You haven't, and I mean, I guess the answer is because it's relatively uninteresting. I mean, I, I just I just live a standard quota day in existence. I, I usually wake up somewhere between four and six. And I start doing design work, and then I leave for my day job at about seven thirty, and that's as a librarian. And I work as a librarian full time, and then I finish at four p.m. I come home, and I do work, mm-hmm. and then I have dinner, and then I do more work, and then I go to bed. Do you uh, do you live in an apartment, a house, what? An apartment, or as it's called here, a unit, which is, is basically an apartment. It's a single story, a block of units. Okay, and it's like how many rooms? Oh, how many? Two bedrooms. One is being used as a studio. The other one's being used as a bedroom. I repeat, a bedroom. Right. There is there is a there is a kitchen lounge room open area type deal going on. There is a laundry area. There is a toilet area, and there is a bathroom. Mm-hmm. 
Now, see, the reason why I ask you this also is because a, a lot of stuff you put on Facebook, it kind of like tends to uh, humor, uh, is humorize a word? I don't know. Uh, turn into humor that which is mundane. So I thought it might be good to get just a nice picture. Do you have any neighbors that really get under your fucking skin or coworkers who just chap your ass? <laughs> I, okay, there's, there is a neighbor that lives across the way um, who, who is a nice guy, but I often find him investigating my gutters. And I don't know why. He just really, he, he just does it. And, mm. and he will tell me how poor the condition of my gutters are and will suggest that they need to be cleaned. And, and I remember once I got the gutters cleaned and afterwards I found him outside with a ladder in my gutters assessing the man's job. The and fuck? then he told, he then told me afterwards that I had overpaid for the service. It hadn't been done properly. And, and, and I found that <laughs> relatively invasive. <laughs> Dude, that sounds, it's so funny because am I, am I guessing correctly that this is sort of a blue collar fellow, like a, a, a kind uh, of everyman type guy? He is an old school Italian immigrant, one of the first wave of Italian immigrants who okay. came to Australia. So he's in his, um, he's in his seventies now, but he <clears throat> dyes his hair like a, a thick tar black. I see. So it's, it's sort of, um, it sort of gives an you know when you can tell somebody is as old as they are, but they do something to their appearance that just fundamentally offsets yeah. how old they're supposed to be. So, so he creates this kind of jarring figure, um, and and that, that's my that's my neighbour across the way. I remember once I I actually went to his house for New Year's Eve. This was many many years ago, and um, we were talking, and he, he's a man who obsessively. Um, manicures his garden and he mm -hmm. keeps his house in the mm -hmm. most his life is DIY and, right. and garden and, and he asked me what I did and I think this is about after my second book got released I mentioned that I was a writer and um, and I even then I went back to my house and I got a couple of my books and I said here I, I did these and he, he really really didn't like the idea of books he was mm -hmm. vehemently against it and, and said that I'm wasting my time Mm -hmm. with words when when there are things in life that should be getting done and you know i don't necessarily disagree with him but i, I choose to continue wasting my life with words you know it's so interesting because the first the first reaction to that is like oh wow what a dick but the way i see it that guy clearly the way you you've hi rios oh yeah she's watching her shows yeah she's chuckling <laughs> to her shows um or whatever it is she's doing over there um, but the way, the way it seems is that that guy's life is his, the way his shit looks, right? And so mm. people busy themselves with those projects, especially when they get into old age. And man, my whole family is like, is or was like that, you know? They just don't get why <clears throat> you would write things down and try to sell them <laughs> to people. It just doesn't make any sense to them. Like, well, I, I honestly, it doesn't make a great deal of sense to me. I mean, the writing things down, yeah, but then when we take it to that next step of trying to sell it to people, I mean, right. what are we doing? Right. Oh, man. And we've had, you know what? That's actually a pretty good segue. And thank you for humoring me in my asking about your day-to-day uh, -day type thing. I was half genuinely curious and half thought it would be kind of funny. So I appreciate you uh, <laughs> kind of engaging with me. Um, but that's something that we've been talking about well at least we did for a while there uh, our f facebook message threads um 
were pretty full of just this idea of like what exactly we're doing regarding you know releasing this work and it having it kind of living forever on the internet and mm. it, it costing the certain amount of money and and just it's always available in this big box store in the sky called amazon we had a lot of interesting thoughts about that so i was wondering if uh well, i guess you could just kind of take it from like take it from there how you feel about your book being on amazon well i mean it, it's a process i'm I guess I'm relatively used to by now, but I, I was juxtaposed at the time. I remember when we were talking about this and I was juxtaposing it very directly against the music that I have out. None of my music is available to buy on Amazon. Um, they're all available via independent distros or brick and mortar stores. And, and it was really interesting to start thinking about things in terms of that again. Um, and, Cause I, I've become so accustomed to this, this idea that, you know, a, a book is, uploaded it goes to amazon and all these other online sites where it exists as data for people to potentially purchase and that data becomes a process which turns the book into a physical product and then gets sent out and and then all of a sudden i i had music released by labels that were producing a finite amount of copies and i was just thinking wow i mean it, assuming enough people want this this is going to run out you're not just going to be able to rely on it being there forever and and what i noticed is that in terms of my music at the time that was selling out and and that was getting a lot of interest and usually quite fast and then all of a sudden it was gone and and it felt kind of exciting to me yeah and i i think that that's probably where i started sort of germinating these ideas hey kalua can you relax please can you lay down for a second? Can you stop pacing? Whenever I start talking into the microphone, she just start. I, I don't know what it is. It's a. I don't know if she feels like I'm angry with her or something, but she starts. Do pacing. you want me to, to, to get all velvet into the mic to try and calm her? <laughs> no, I think that she'll eventually calm down. Hey, is she... Uh, I'm only doing this because it's you, by the way, and I know that you won't mind. Um, is she hungry? Does she need food? She, she's full. So, what is she doing? Does she need something? I was okay. Well, it's. I just don't want the whole podcast to have the cl- down, the, the Come here, goddamn claws on the on the wood. <laughs> I like this. All right. Thank you. All right. Anyway. Okay. So, um, thank you for bearing with me. I'm gonna leave all that yeah. shit in. Um, Please, I, I, actually, I insist that you do. <laughs> and, uh, okay, so basically, the thing that appealed to me so much about what your record labels do, in particular with the, um, with the audio cassettes and the vinyl, things like that, and mm. the fact that it is limited, is I feel like we don't... There are people like performance artists who create something in a particular temporal space, right? And then it's gone. Mm, mm. Um, and I think that the thing about writers is that, you know, there's that thought that writers are trying to create something that's going to live forever. They're going to write a classic that's going to be this, read. This idea of legacy. Exactly. And mm. I'm against, I like the idea of being able to give life to a project, but also, you know, choose when i euthanize it well yeah 
right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I don't know if I necessarily want the things that I write to be around in three or four hundred years. I feel like some of the shit that I'm saying is going to price down pretty fucking stupid in three hundred years, you know? Well, well, one thing that I often think about was that there's actually two things, but I'm going to um, mention the first thing I thought of second because I've just segued to the second thing. Are you with me? I'm with you, bro. Let's go. Um, I, I think about these these famous writers who have long since passed and the ways in which their body of work is mined for unreleased examples of what they do and and they get released completely out of their control. And I often think that, what if somebody went through my computer after I died and cobbled together bits, bits of manuscript which never made the grade and then released it as the un you know the, the, the unread works of Matthew Revert and and that <laughs> and, uh, and and that's kind of it's kind of scary, isn't it? I also wonder about those people who um, posthumously have diaries released with all of their most intimate oh, details. Jesus and, Christ! I, I, I don't know. Like it's mm. so wrong, dude. I mean, you could see with like Ghost Set a Watchman, that's clearly unethical and wrong. Um, mm, but mm. it goes further than that too. I mean, what was it? That Kerouac and Burroughs, that Hippos in the Tank book, that first book that they wrote really like you're gonna go back like let's say hypothetically i became a super famous popular author and then i died and they went back to my fucking zanga blog and picked stories <laughs> off of that but i really do like the idea of um controlling the number um but mm. I, i've actually found that there are some people who react quite negatively to this particularly with um like i've chosen to not re-release <clears throat> my first novel you know um mm. I've chosen to just like let by the time like pretty much die. I have four copies, four physical copies on my person right now. I sent one to a person who had ordered it used and it never showed up and I felt bad. So I sent him a copy. Um, and then I have four. And to my mind, that's, that's it. You know, it might change yeah. eventually, but to my mind, it's like I was a different person when I wrote that. I, I, but it's not even that it's even if I was the same person, I just feel like, books should die you know <laughs> i mean it, it, it's natural cycle isn't it it doesn't just have to apply to living life but also the material i mean okay so i mean another another factor here you, you mentioned that um you found that there's people who respond quite negatively to this idea of a limited run and i'm assuming these are people who are immured in the, in the writing world people who are familiar with with books more than anything else and I sort of came into the writing world from the underground music world where there's, there's a very different sort of ethos there. And there was a couple of things that really struck me when I first sort of started getting involved in writing. First was how frowned down upon, especially at the time, self-publishing was. Whereas in music, it was really celebrated when people released their own work in these handmade editions and it was something of a collector's item and then the second thing was these were often released in very very small runs and so i came into it very used to that concept you know you you act now or you know you're going to miss out on this item right. and if you don't have the money and that's fine and, and that's kind of exciting there's and and so then i get involved in, in writing and all of a sudden i notice my mindset starting to change and this idea that a book will be forever available 
online and anybody can buy it at any time and and then that becomes my reality and then when my music starts getting released again i confront the the reality that these will be limited and and then i started to get excited by that as well and and then i thought about how exciting it can look when you, you look at something you release and it says sold out and mm. and it, it sort of shows people that you know what if you actually you're interested in this person maybe you want to jump on that before it's gone that that was all kind of appealing to me yeah no and i actually experienced this recently with um t-shirts funny enough um i I'm a big fan of a rapper called uh, Bones. He's this, uh, mm-hmm. I think he's like a 21-year-old white dude from Detroit. Uh, and I don't know, he makes like these really goth emo raps that I just I just love on so many levels. And um, I've been trying to get a shirt to show my love, you know, for a while. But it's always sold out because they do that thing where they, you know, they do a very cryptic message on Twitter like just go to this website and then boom, the t-shirts are available and then they're gone. And mm. I fucking snagged one like two days ago. Like I, I caught it at the right time. I was on Twitter at the right time. I went to the t-shirt place and I got it and I was like, fuck. Yeah. Like I was like almost shaking. This is, <laughs> this is embarrassing to say, but I was almost shaking when I was like checking out. Cause I thought I wasn't going to do it fast enough, you know? Um, <laughs> but I got it. And whenever that bad boy comes in the mail, I don't know. I feel like I might like that shirt more than other shirts. Yeah, basically the way in which it was distributed and the limited nature of it injected a sense of excitement into the consumer process. And and you know, that's that's that is kind of good. I, I like I mean I've got a, a lathe cut record coming out. It should be very, very soon. And this is um for those who aren't familiar with what a lathe cut record is, these are these are hand cut records. And um it's being done in New Zealand actually, that's where the label's doing it. And it's only gonna be fifty handmade copies. Everything is being completely handmade. And it, it's kind of um it's kind of exciting to me to know that it's so fleeting that if there is any interest at all, these will be gone very fast. And then that's just it. It's gone. And, and whoever got them, whether they actually like my stuff or not, that's just who has them. That's the luck mm-hmm. of the draw. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's, that's life. Yeah, no. And I like that a lot. Also, I like that in opposition to this, um, continuous production model, this print on demand thing, which mm. of course I still use. I mean, all of my books are print on demand. Your book is print on demand, but um, don't tell anyone. <laughs> what would they do if they knew? I told um, my family you were a big five. Oh shit! Well, I am a I am a big five. Big five inches. Hey oh oh yeah. five is five is big, right? That's a big that's a big one, right? Um. According to Mr. Henderson, it is. Uh, okay, no, 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 uh, Mr. Henderson's an ongoing joke from my childhood. It doesn't. I don't need to go any further than that. I don't even know what it is, but I just like that. I, I don't know. I just pictured the, the Bigfoot from Harry and the Hendersons with a five-inch dick, and it made me laugh. But There are like three people in the world who will hear me say that and laugh. Everybody else will just gloss over it or maybe think of what you did and I'll get a sympathy laugh or something. Right, right. Well, the thought of Bigfoot with a tiny dick is pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, because it's, it's the opposite of what you would expect. <laughs> but the thing about uh, capitalism in, in particular is that it creates this uh, necessity for things to scale, right? So, mm. 
uh, corporations have to be the biggest that they can possibly be. Uh, our language even changes to hyperbole. This is all. Um, there's a there's a really smart person called Fuck Theory, um, mm. who I whose Patreon I contribute to, and they because I don't know their sex, they um, had a tweet storm about this. Anyway, so corporations have to scale. Our language becomes all or nothing. But then it kind of. Um, it's kind of why people become so fucking depressed, right? Because we, by doing that, by valuing uh, quantification over qualification, we sort of lose our value in the small moments, in the small gestures, conversations, things like that. Because if it's not big, if it's not, it's, it's like go big or go home, right? So a mm, lot of us mm. go home because we're unable to grasp the significance of small action. And so we get into depressive feedback loops when our actions do not scale the way a corporation would scale, right? Mm. So I, I think that releasing books um, and focusing in life on, you know, tending small gardens, releasing small projects, uh, communicating in small, small but effective ways is perhaps uh, antidepressant for capitalist scaling, quantification, mm bullshit well yeah for, for me it's it's about trying to see as much as you're capable of doing so through all of that noise into what you actually are and what you actually represent so much of what i write so much of the music that i do is, is utterly obsessed with small seemingly uninteresting gestures i, I just True. I, I i'm obsessed with that stuff and True. and i don't know i i like to, i like to um force people a little just to focus on that for a while and that's not to say that people aren't doing it themselves that sounds kind of really condescending to say oh you don't know how to focus on the small things everybody everybody does i i just make a very conscious effort to inject that into what i do because you're right we the sort of um the, the way that society works it really minimizes us as people um because we're now serving something greater than ourselves and it's it's not necessarily what we stand for did that make any sense no i'm with you yeah no i'm 100 there yeah <laughs> oh but that but that was the end of the thought okay all right i, I thought i thought you're going to continue going um <laughs> <laughs> but no no i'm 100 with you man and i do but i do think that you know what a radical idea it is to not necessarily reject success and 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 size and you know becoming big and great in all the ways our society defines big and great and instead conscientiously opting to be small and great mm. right well yeah i mean I, is this i don't know if this is just coincidental or are you sort of doing a take on the name of my record uh no it's coincidence <laughs> That's all right. I, I kind of like that more. No, yeah. I, I think there is something to be scared. One, one thing is, um, quite often, not becoming successful isn't an option. It's it's thrust upon us. Right. <laughs> I, right. I, it's, it's thrust upon most of us. If, if we were to look empirically at what it means to be successful, be that 
you know, economically successful or, 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 or whatever. What we're doing, I guess, we're trying to make money. And the, the dream might be to make enough money to be able to decide what we want to do. And most of us are not going to achieve that. The vast majority of us will not. Or we might have a fleeting moment in time where we get that for a while and then that starts to ebb away. Sustaining. <laughs> you totally just uh, now now i'm trying to recapture my thought what sort of interviewer are you david osborne um, where you what? won't even let your guests talk <laughs> um, i guess not a very good one <laughs> no no you're you're you're, you're good you're, you're making me think of things that i haven't thought about before mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so <laughs> c- continue um so what was i saying well, you were talking. Wait, let's 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 rewind it. Um, you were talking about fuck. Now I don't remember. Oh well, there's there's a there. Listeners right now are screaming. You were fucking talking about something. Imp- oh, well, you uh, uh, money about making money and making how, money and yeah. how most of us never will doing right. what we love. Right. And, and sometimes I think it's exciting to embrace that because I, I think that we become so so focused on this idea that we can be one of the successes, you know. And and maybe if we just stopped focusing on that and, and directed our attention toward what really motivated us, we might find that we become more successful without really even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. No, I think that that's true. I think that... Um... The one thing that I would maybe push back on a little bit is um, I feel like it might be important to really commit to being successful on your own terms um, and having those terms be not diametrically opposed, but at least partially opposed to those of the current uh sort of capitalistic state you, you see what i'm saying like to oh, where absolutely where, where the idea isn't to pull some kind of jujitsu and you know by not trying to be successful become successful but rather just be like this is what my success looks like my success looks like every time i come out with a book it's limited to 500 copies and that's it and then we move on right and yeah but on that so that's a wonderful way to to view success and I would have to say if you can come up with a, a personal definition of success, which separates itself somewhat to the, the single-minded focus on profit, then then that's wonderful. That in itself is a success. Mm-hmm. Um, when I talk about it, I'm talking about a very capitalistic form of success mm-hmm. and and how that can be very counterproductive. Uh, I, guess, I guess for me, the ideal would be, and I'm not saying I'm at this point, but if I could release a book and have not a single person in the world read it and still feel satisfied. Mm. And then now, just, just the idea that, that I've reached a place where the, the, the production of the work and just having it done is justification enough, and, and that sustains me. I'm not at that stage yet. If, if I had um, looked at Amazon on the day Human Trees was released and I didn't see a, a budge in the, in the ranking, I, I probably would have been a bit glum. Um, but I, I, it'd be it's an interesting to think of that sort of point where you then become completely freed from from expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how realistic that is, but well, I mean, it's we're talking about 
similar things, I guess, because we're both sort of just talking about how we define success and, and sort of like the, because in my hypothetical model, I'm not close to that yet either. Um, so I guess we're just sort of both talking about like where we'd like to be, you know, like, and and honestly, I don't even know if I am emotionally mature enough right now to want to be there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, I, I, I have ego and, and that ego demands to be fed from time to time. And, and I'm not in some Zen like space where where the complete, um, deprivation of, of nourishment to my ego would work. But mm-hmm. I, I think about that as some form of ideal. You know when you have those transient thoughts, which which in that moment just seem absolutely perfect, and then you know five minutes later you're just doing the same shit you always do. Yes, I do, I do because I've been smoking a lot of weed lately, and so I, <laughs> and so I so I, I get that. But um, no, I think that uh, ego is an interesting way to think about it too, because something that I've been trying to do is um not detach from ego that's completely impossible but to detach uh writing from ego and t- tell, tell me what you think in, of this. in order to just just quickly in order to yes. do that would you then have to detach your writing from you yes you are 100 percent correct and i would have to i've been playing around with the idea well i've actually i've I released something under a pseudonym that nobody knows the who my pseudonym is and it's got like two reviews on amazon and they're both like one's a four and one's a three and it was like well this is okay i guess <laughs> <laughs> but i did that about like four years ago and it's still like it's has sold zero copies uh uh for the past oh i don't know probably three years it just it, it got swept away into the ether right so that was that was my experiment, but I'm never going to say what that book was. Um, <laughs> but I feel like um, the ego does need to be fed. So I've been moving more towards just like embracing the selfie, you know, as a, mm-hmm. you know, aesthetically pleasing man. I'm just like, I'm going to take a picture of myself and everybody can look at it and be like, oh, he's handsome. And like that will be my e- my ego's meal for the day. You know, and then I (laughs) like not put it in other like my intellect or my art or whatever that can be kind of ego, not free, but deadened, perhaps. Do you ever worry that um, the more you feed your ego in whatever avenue you choose to feed it, the hungrier that it gets? So if you start to get positive feedback from these selfies, Uh um, what does your ego want in return? Is it just satisfied and that's it? You wait for the next one or next time it comes back, does it want a little bit more? I feel like that varies from person to person and from, uh, I don't know, just from where everybody's at individually at their particular points in time in their life. I, I, I see what you mean, but I, I don't think that, I don't think that ego is necessarily always a feedback loop or an ever increasing hungry type of monster. I think it can be satiated if you clearly define its its boundaries. Maybe I don't know. I don't, but we'll You're see. I mean, right. We'll see that now. And now I'll be posting dick pics in like three days. Like, why is this only getting fifteen likes? And one heart, <laughs> really? One heart? I know you heart my dick. Anyway. <laughs> oh, see now I'm just considering who hearted it and why. Was it an, was it like an ironic heart or was it like a really earnest heart? <laughs> I, 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 if, if anybody ever directs a heart toward my dick, let it be honest. 
<laughs> oh man, I gotta pull that. That's the pull quote. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I just also want to state I, I don't often spend time reflecting upon the nature of the ego, and I have read very little about it, and I know very little about the the you know theory surrounding it. I'm just I'm just talking off the cuff here. Sure, sure, just off the dome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You and your hip lingo. Yeah, well, you know, me and the kids have a very, very tight relationship where they feed me all the cool lingos and I buy them beer. <laughs> I heard um, MF Doom does that. Or well, I guess he just calls himself Doom now. Not, not he, as far as I'm aware, now I just read this in an interview once. They, he has people who keep track of the current slang and lingo being used and they give it to him so he what? can incorporate it if he needs to. I don't know if that's true but or if it still happens, but at least at one point somebody claimed it did. That's so bizarre. Yeah, that's weird. Because I kind of want to be the old guy who's saying all the wrong things. I sort of think I was born that guy. <laughs> well, that guy is also a guy who wears very, very short uh, cut-off jean shorts. <laughs> <laughs> are you inferring that's me i i infer nothing my friend i i'm just i'm just simply you're a conduit i'm just saying what what's on my mind this is what my podcast is all about where i can talk about whatever i want to and my guests have to listen to me and god damn it <laughs> <laughs> I, I was i was thinking about this on the way home today knowing that we were going to be doing this and that's the idea of the interviewer which i guess you're getting a lot of experience with now yeah. and and every guest that comes on the show has their own series of things that they want to talk about and how you have to contort yourself in order to become the perfect counterpart to that guest and so and so whatever i talk about you have to have some form of input you have to and and i kind of control that and it seems unfair what well, this is you've done over 70 of these now haven't you yeah this will be 79 yeah, and so that's that's seventy nine times you've had to contort yourself to somebody else's personality. That's mm -hmm. that. How do you find that? Is that is that taxing, or do you just go with the flow? I mean, because you'd be, you'd be, you'd find yourself talking about things that you, you've never really reflected upon before. Yeah. No. Uh, well, you know, when um, when you're a polymath like like myself, and uh, you're just you're just good at a lot of things. Mm, um, mm. You don't really question where the talent comes from. You just show up and go to work. You know what I'm saying? So I no, dig but, that. No, but seriously, um, yeah, no, I think that it's it's pretty easy if you. I cannot remember where I heard this, but if you always fall back on uh, why or tell me more about that, I can normally get to a point where they'll say fucking something, or I can very subtly sort of change the subject to something I fucking know about, you know? Or I'll say something like, that's interesting that you say that, because I was thinking, and then the the connection is so fucking tenuous, you know? <laughs> but I'm, I'm building that bridge to get to where I can talk again. But I, but I guess then you're using your personality and, and your natural charisma to tie that together, so that that tenuousness of the link isn't necessarily so obvious because what, what is a what is a question that I could ask you or a topic that I could veer into that would make you really uncomfortable just in terms of your lack of knowledge? Uh, in terms of my lack of knowledge, nothing's really coming to the forefront. I feel like if you, 
Uh, no, that's not true. I guess if if I was talking to, let's say, somebody who was extremely knowledgeable on a particular species of plant, um, I don't know a lot about botany. Mm. So I feel like if they just started talking and kind of droning about when you're in the Amazon, <laughs> there's three different types of... I, I, I would probably... <laughs> it basically... I haven't had a guest yet on the show who has actively like disliked me um, because most of them are either friends or people who I kind of know. And they're, they're writers too. And writers are sweethearts. You know what I mean? Like mm. making a writing podcast is the easiest thing in the world because so many writers are just, they just want to be liked so hard that they're, they're willing to work with me. But I, I think that it my real challenge would be if I interviewed somebody who was, antagonistic to me because i don't think there's ah. been one of those maybe i can ask a uh, nick mamatas on or something who <laughs> he's a friend but he's very antagonistic so we, we'd see how that went i get the feeling though that that's i mean correct me if i'm wrong but if somebody were to act antagonistically towards you you would probably be fairly good at at rolling with that well i mean i i get i mean it, it, it's just my parents, you know, like my, 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 my dad is very, is, is hyper aggressive and moody. And my mm. mother is very, uh, people pleaser type, uh, always agrees that, that kind of, so I'm kind of like a mixture of the two. Do, do you so, think there's a dominance though? Do you have more of your mother or more of your father? More of my mother by, by far, mm. by far. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I go, I go with people a lot. Actually at the point, you know, the one thing, uh, that I do get ashamed about is that I don't challenge people enough when they say fucked up shit that yeah and that bothers me i don't i don't know i don't know about you but you know when somebody will say something that's like not super racist but like a little racist mm. i'll kind of just like brush it off and then later on i'll be like man i should have fucking said something i don't know how you feel about all that but no i'm 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 guilty of that too i think i mean i don't i don't mind fuck it too much but i know that i'm not one to speak out when maybe occasionally that i should uh and and that would also come from from my upbringing as well i, I have no doubt about that um i just find all that stuff so interesting because I, I i can tell you why i started thinking along these lines of, of how you approach an interview and that's because i remember you did a promo for i think jared middleton and you set a list of of topics that you'd be discussing and mm -hmm. and i just i see this range of topics and i know you well enough to see how you can easily talk about these topics but like for instance i, I i'm obsessed with czech new wave cinema and i know a lot of people haven't seen a lot of that so if i came up to you and said oh god david i really want to talk about czech new wave that would be something that would be a bit more out of your scope yep but you want to do it let's fucking go let's go Let's talk about Czech New Wave. <laughs> so, right. you so now you're doubling all, down and you're getting. <laughs> well, hold on, so hold on. So first of all, so for, first of all, what uh, what time period is this New Wave? Is it is it like I, I associate New Wave with like the '80s because of you know music and shit. So, what where where is the Czech New Wave situated temporally? Um, I don't know. No, I just I just wanted to answer whatever you asked me with that. Um, mm. the, the, <laughs> the, the 60s primarily. It sort of it all sort of um, happened before the Prague is Spring. This, is this like red and blue? Are they are, were those Czech films? 
Those no, I believe they they were Polish. I believe. Oh, hey, Polish represent what? What? Uh, okay, so what's the movie you went to that was like fucking long as hell, like eight or nine? But that was the red and blue ones, right? No, that was a that was a film by Jacques Rivette called Out One. And Out that, that's One, a, right? Okay. Yeah, ama- amazing movie at the time. It, it's since been re released um, in a really nice Blu-ray transfer. But at the time, that was really really tricky to see. And the Melbourne International Film Festival at the time they had a um. They had uh, the reels, so they could actually project it for the first time in Australia. They were able to project the film, and it, I mean, this is the only copy that was apparently available. So it had like two sets of subtitles on it, Whoa. just because that's all they had. That's and, so uh, fucking cool! Oh, that gives me like weird chills. I don't know why, but like that's so cool. It was so difficult to to see. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and this is even in an age where, you know, torrents exist. I mean, this isn't going back pre-internet. This is, was a very hard film to track down. I remember mm-hmm. downloading a copy that I think was shown on German television in the 80s. Yeah. So it was a v- VHS rip with um, no English subs, German German subs, French audio. And I downloaded that. I tried to watch it, and I, and I really couldn't. It was impossible. So this was a really exciting thing for me. And, and you know, it, it really lived up to it. It becomes more than a film when you dedicate that much time to sitting in this space and and this watching this thing unfold it becomes more than that i so think but I, I, mm. how, how many how many intermissions were were there for that thing well that the out one is broken up into i think 10 different episodes so what they would do is they would show i think um it was split over two sessions and they would show three episodes have a very short break show the remaining then in the next session they'd do the same thing and um so You'd sort of watch in three-hour blocks before okay. you had a break. Right on, right on, and uh, and and so so, God, that that's crazy to me because sometimes when I I have to pee at movies, I get really kind of upset because I'm like, oh, I'm gonna miss the important mm. thing. And they they had us they had us covered. Everybody was issued a catheter, and we just <laughs> we, we slid those babies in, and I could drink all the soda pop I wanted. <laughs> It's the shit and piss back. It's like we know this is really important to you. But wait, so so this is not but this is not Czech New Wave. No, that that that's French and and that was slightly after the, the Czech period. I mean so, Jacques Rivet is one of my favorite directors, but yeah, not that. So what uh so give me an example of like a Czech New Wave thing that I might have seen. Uh, a popular one, and this has been um, re-released by places like Criterion, so it has a bit more um, of a profile. Valerie and Her Week of Wonders, that's one that a lot of people know about because it sort of slipped through into the cult horror world. Um, but I can tell you the film that really sort of got me utterly hooked, and that was a film called Daisies. And Criterion released an Eclipse box set of, of Czech New Wave that has that, so it, it's much easier for people to see now. And that, that film just completely blew me away. I couldn't, I couldn't believe I, I hadn't been aware of this whole style of filmmaking. It was so much invention and so exciting, and I sort of became obsessed with it after that. So what uh, I was going to ask what it's about, but I, I get this weird feeling that these are not movies that you necessarily ask what they're about. Um, but what, well, what when, when you talk about like invention, uh, what are you talking about like different filmmaking techniques or maybe different yeah. just overall? Because I know you like a lot of that patient shit where it's just like I remember one time on Facebook I saw you talk about this movie where it was literally a woman in her kitchen for like an hour and a half doing stuff. That's, that- that's an that's an see that I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go yeah that's an amazing film by the way but yes I know what you're talking about. 
<laughs> I just I just love how you called it that patient shit. I think that's <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, these these Czech New Wave films aren't long, arduous. Most of them go for, you know, 70, 80 minutes. So there's a lot mm. of really short ones. And then Daisy's is, is kind of hypernetic, just nonstop craziness. Whoa. And when, when when I speak of um inventiveness i just mean the film techniques being used the way narrative was explored i mean these were people who seemed to be completely unbound by most of film history and they just went and did their own thing and it's utterly invigorating it's just you in the films range from very sort of serious studies on, on on certain things to just utterly batshit crazy stuff and and it always surprised me especially being around sort of the bizarro world that they're, they're this stuff wasn't talked about because they were some of the most bizarre things that I'd ever seen and, and nobody was talking about it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's because uh, Bizarro, by and large, is just, uh, what if we, like, made the dick poop? That It's that kind of stuff, you know? Um, <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Bizarros. <laughs> what I like is, you, is you're positing that as, like, a committee. Uh, so what if we, like, uh, made the dick poop? Mm, tell me more. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> what else does what else does the dick do besides poop? It has a girlfriend. Oh, is the girlfriend Asian? Yes, sold. Yeah, that's a that's a Carlton Millick book right there. Um. <laughs> I don't I don't know I don't know Carl really, but I assume you're friends with him. Yeah, I am. Yeah, so he he loves you, I'm sure. Oh, he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like I like to poke to poke fun. No, of course, of course, we both love the Bizarro people. That's our, that's where I started, dude. Those, those, mm, those, are, my, those are my peeps, man. They've been incredibly good to me. But I like to make fun of them. I feel like, for some weird reason, like Jeremy Johnson has a pass to make fun of them. Uh, but I feel like I deserve that pass as well. Jeremy it's, Johnson, though, he, he's kind of elevated himself into something else. I mean, mm-hmm. I almost feel that he has a past to do anything. He could come up to me and mock my ability to beat Battletoads, and I'd say, thank you, sir, may I have another? Yeah, no, he did that. You know, what's so funny is that I actually kind of, uh, when I don't want to put the blame on myself, I blame him for uh, some of my less-than-stellar receptions into the literary world because (laughs) when I was kind of just, like, a douchey teenager... And I literally, I met Jeremy when I was 18, and he was a douchey older dude, right, who kind of <laughs> hazed me and like, was like, oh, you suck, what's all this, like, your writing sucks, like, but in, in, a, in, a, help, in a helpful way. Does that make sense? Maybe not. I it, don't know. It, it does make sense, yeah. But he sort of took me under his wing, and he took the things that I wrote, and he outlined where they sucked, and he didn't mince words about why they sucked. And then I came out into the the world at large and i realized people don't like being talked to that way <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember the struggles you used to go through uh not that long after we first really became friends where mm-hmm. where you were constantly sort of reflecting upon how you engage with people and whether you should change the way that you did um and i, I would say that so much of how you engage with people now isn't really because of some conscious decision to change it's because of just the natural process of growing up yeah. No, I was thinking about this today while I was walking to the bus. For some strange reason, I thought about when Cameron and I uh, were talking and he told me, like, you, you're a publisher now. You can't be a dick. And uh, I think that Cameron's heart was in the right place. But what I realized when I actively tried not to be a dick, I feel like things kind of 
kind of chopped the balls off of everything. And then when I sort of like went back to just not really giving a fuck, like not intentionally trying to hurt anybody's feelings, but I realized like once I stopped caring that people started getting mad at me and being like, you're a dick. And it, I was just, whatever, fuck it. I don't care. Like, send me I, I would, I feel like you've got a pretty good balance right now. Some people are always going to get pissed, but I mean, what can you do? Yeah, just send me a picture of you crying and I'll, I'll add it to my list. It's fine. But, um, <laughs> so, um, anyway, I feel like we've talked about me a lot on this. And I feel like this I've, I've... Is maybe you're not intentional, but maybe a little <laughs> sub- subconscious revenge for me asking about the mundanities of your life. I feel no, like I, now, I, now I like, came oh, in. Go ahead. Do you, do you want to actually know my intentions here? Sure. I came into this, as I, as I was coming home today, just thinking about this, knowing that we, we've done, this is going to be the third time we've done this, and I thought, I wonder how much of this can be me interviewing him. Um, and, and so I, just, I thought I'd see if it happened organically. I didn't try to force the matter, and I, th- I feel that it did. Well, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, I'll go wherever the conversation goes. Oh, which reminds me, we, we did talk about Check New Wave, and that actually really interests me. And so I want to, like, skirt, shift gears, because when you were talking about um, the lack of uh, sort of quote-unquote respect for what came before, and it was like, these aren't your words, but the way I see it is like, it's like these people found a camera, and they're doing things that have never been done. That's how I feel when I watch Takashi Miike movies. Like it feels like he's never he barely knows what a camera does, especially in those early films. But he Mika Mika is an interesting example. I mean, this guy has made so many films. Uh, I, I have a friend, a friend of mine actually, the one who directed Cat Sick Blues, mm-hmm. who made it his mission to try and see everything Mika did. And so many of these films weren't even available in Japan. This guy has done like over a hundred films. Oh yeah, and, his hundredth came uh, out this year. And uh, and. I, I do wonder sometimes because yeah, some of his films just they feel like they're they're being they they were made by you know a film class that have, have were having their first session. I, how, how much of that is intentional? How much of it is because of his crazy schedule where he was just rushing, 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 getting one film done, then going to the next, getting one film done, going to the next. I don't know. It, he, he's an interesting one though, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. And it's always it's it's not always good. And I like that. Oh, some of his films are terrible. But I and, like um, I like it. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. It is. It's exciting. And and he just he basically throws everything at the wall and sees what sticks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Like, if I don't understand people who go to movies or books or music and think, I have loved everything this, this person has made, so I know I will love this thing. And then they see that thing and they're like, I love that too. Great. That's so. It's so boring. It's such a boring relationship to art, I think. But I, I would tend to agree. It's always nice when when an artist that you love just has a real stinker, and and you sort of part of you's always that part of you that wants to see beyond the stink, even when you wouldn't give another film as bad a chance were it uh-huh. not helmed by an artist that you love. I don't. It's just yeah. I don't know. It's just um. I basically I'm saying I agree. I've been there so many times, dude. I've been there with um, 
the Coen brothers so many times where I'm like, well, it's not. It's the Lady Killers actually isn't bad if you think about it. No, the Lady Killers <laughs> is, is is a bad. Like that's a bad movie. See, this is this is where I come out and say, and this is this is no great allegiance. I, I think Coen brothers have done some amazing stuff, but I, I I really enjoyed the Lady Killers. I almost didn't see it as a Coen brothers film. I just really enjoyed it, <laughs> and I know that that's not right to say, but I I, I found it I found it fun. Yeah, no, but I mean, but that's what's so great, though, is that if, if you can see the good and bad in stuff and, and kind of not, like, good and bad isn't an arbiter of whether it's worthy or not to exist, then it's completely okay to have differing opinions at that point because it's not life and death anymore. Does that mm. make sense? Absolutely it does. So God, yes. So it's like, yeah, no, I think that movie sucks. You think it's cool. We don't hate each other about it. But when being a good movie means something, then all of a sudden we're like, fuck you, bro. Why did the lightsaber have three blades instead of one? <laughs> that doesn't make any fucking sense, dude. So, dipping into your deep well of Star Wars. <laughs> dude, I don't even know, man. I thought Rogue One was so bad. It, like, so, like, I, the more I thought about it, the more offensive that movie became to me. Do you watch Star Wars? Is this something that you know? No, not really. I did as, eh, as a child. Like, the, original, the original trilogy, yeah. <laughs> That's but, the only, dude, you just gave the only answer an adult should give when asked about that. It's like, I don't know, when I was a child, I wa- watched <laughs> They're fucking grown adults arguing about this shit, and Matt's just like, completely devoid of any kind of, you know, superiority, but just, I don't know, when I was a kid, I watched (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, for the record, I I was really quite obsessed with it as a kid, Um, but that's it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, because, oh, what happened? You actually grew up. Um, I don't know, that's a whole other thing. So, okay, so... Back to uh, so what what defi- what defines Czech New Wave? Czech New Wave really is predicated upon the time frame that it was made. Okay. Um, so it, it's it's all the films that fall within the Czech New Wave umbrella that they're all very very different. Um, okay. Uh, what what really determines it is is the era that it was made, the the spirit in which it was made. We're we're talking a lot about films that were made outside of any sort of official. Um, film production process that maybe the, the bigger budget movies were um and and this this all sort of kept on going right up until around the time of the of the prague spring and then the communism um, communism arrived and it really kind of put a real halt on all of that activity and so it is it this captures a really specific moment of time so it maybe sort of start from early 60s maybe pushes as far to early 70s but um definitely mid to late 60s especially and um just really exciting stuff. Can you um, sort of uh, see its influence in stuff like like more modern things that I might recognize? Oh, what's a good question? Um, gee, that's a really hard question, actually. I'm trying to think of some of the of, of the bigger films. Um, I mean, because another thing about the the Czech New Wave is it didn't really at the time go that far beyond Europe. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I, I can't. I watch a film like Daisies, for instance, and I can't really immediately attach it to anything else that might have been influenced by it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it, there must have been, but I, I just see one of the things I like about these films is they just they seem so distinctly them. Mm-hmm. And perhaps if there was a rich tradition of using that as inspiration, those films would start to use a, lose a little bit of their own identity, and I might not see it 
in such a strong way. I think the only director at the time who was working in the Czech New Wave that really got out of there and started making films in Hollywood was Milos Forman. He was a director who was part of the um, the Czech New Wave. The the um, communism arrived. He sort of got out of the country and started making films in, in America to some really great success. But other than that, most of them stayed where they were and, and just sort of worked around the area. And their films were sadly quite diluted after that because there were so many more restrictions placed upon what they could do. Oh, wow. Like, Content-wise, like just Con- content-wise, and and not always for um, reasons that you'd think. Daisies, one one of the um, reasons Daisies was a controversial film. You, if you had watched it without knowing it, you wouldn't you wouldn't even think this could be controversial. But the film depicts a food fight, and they they banned the film for this. And the reason they did that was because at the time, well, this this is what they claim. I think there was a, a larger push to try to. Um, to suppress the whole movement at the time because they were speaking really openly and saying some things about the government that the government didn't want them saying. But the excuse that they used for daisies was um, it um, portrayed people wasting food. And in times of such food shortages, it's irresponsible to be portraying that. So they banned the film. Yeah, that sounds like horseshit. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I, I tend to agree with you. And and so, yeah, a lot of these films were very, very... um, judgmental of of the government for for good reason and 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 it wasn't something that went down well it's just they sort of managed to make a lot of these films in a bit of a golden period where they weren't directly stopped right right well that's man see you sold it you sold it to me i'm interested i go to like i go to you and jeff jackson for this shit i'm like isn't yeah jeff and i have quite a few conversations about the check anyway he posted something recently about Alan Clark, and I watched uh, <laughs> Elephant the other day, and I liked it a lot. And that- Alan Clark's amazing. I mean, this this set that he's talking about, I think that's that one that was just released that has all of the surviving feature films he made for television. And, and when I was heavily into Clark, a lot of these films, they, they were impossible to get. So, I mean, I, I was based at Scum with Ray Winstone. I, I remember seeing Scum when I was in my early 20s and just loving it. And that's how I sort of got interested in Alan Clark. I have not seen Scum, but I, you know, they, they the piece that I read before uh, the, uh, the, the fanzine thing was in the New York Times. And it talks about how uh, Clark films a lot of people just walking. And, mm. uh, that was right up my alley because I'm really getting into um, when I do watch films, I want to see a lot of process shots. Like I, mm. I like watching shots of people wordlessly doing things. Um, did you ever see the film Leviathan? I have not seen Leviathan. But you know the one I'm talking about on a, on a fishing boat. Mm, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I do see that name sounds familiar, but I can't attach it to anything. So it's a it's this really really great documentary. It's about an hour and a half. And oh, it's a, it's, a, it's a fishing boat, and um, it's literally just fishermen doing their thing. So it's pulling in a huge net of fish. It's gutting the fish. It's the, like the opening sequence of the film is about six minutes of these giant chains on the back of this trawler pulling in a fucking humongous uh, net of salmon, right? Um, mm. And, you know, the, the way it's shot, the lighting is very dim. So these, you know, these chains as they're coming in are these sort of godlike, strange, demonic 
eventually because you you become sort of like the 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 soundtrack is mostly what's going on what 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 is it called when it's just natural sound there's a term for that oh that's called and i should i should know this that's called um diegetic it's diegetic sound right oh i was you might be right i was actually thinking of the filmmaking term for environmental sound so yeah just ignore me yep oh yeah well i think diegetic is like stuff that anyway um incident incidental sound that's what i was thinking okay right on right on but yeah but we were going down different different paths. sure sure and then and then so it goes from that and then it cuts to like a shot of a barrel where a guy is just like he puts a fish on the barrel he slits it open he guts it he tosses the fish out and then he does it again and that goes for about 10 minutes and i love the shit out of that stuff you know like i could just now- watch that forever now that's interesting because yeah, I, I agree that stuff can be amazing. Um, how how is that? Because I remember you talking about those, those patience films that I like, and a lot of people would consider that uh, very similar. So oh. what what is it think about about that sort of activity being depicted cinematically that you respond to so much? Right, uh, I'm glad you asked. Um, the difference is that in the quote unquote <laughs> that patient shit. Um, that's, that's that's what I was aware of. <laughs> The, the the idea is that there's a setup that has a promised payoff, and mm-hmm. I become impatient waiting for what the payoff is. Okay. I think that when I watch films where it's a process and it's understood that these are processes, not setup and payoffs, I become much more relaxed and it like I enjoy watching the process. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. That's a great answer. Yeah. So basically, yeah. I mean, it come it comes down to whether or not there's a proposed payoff or not. Like, the one thing that I can't stand in, uh, the one thing that I nab a lot of people for when I do the freelance editing, and and a common mistake I see is when the action gets rolling, people want to start adding backstory. And, <laughs> you know, like going back, be like, okay, so basically you have to know that these. It's like, dude, no. Once the ball is rolling, the ball is rolling. Before you get to that point, you're allowed to do whatever the fuck you want. But after that point, you got to give me all the good stuff. Like I'm here for the cotton candy. Well, that makes sense. But what do you do when you have somebody like me who writes a book that has so little action in it that you can't no. find no cotton candy? Well, you would fall more into the Leviathan category, where I feel like from the <laughs> beginning of Human Trees, you set up that nobody nobody thinks that it's gonna like. How do I? Nobody thinks that it's going to be a typical book, right? Where there's this, mm. you know, sort of rising. Th- you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, they're going to be there, you know? Um, and so I think that that's, I don't know. But yeah, we should we should probably talk about the fucking book, shouldn't we? I Yeah, well, we can if you want. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe one of your things is to is to promote the book by talking about everything else and then the only thing left becomes this thing for the listeners to explore sure yeah no we can do that too that's how i normally try to do it but uh just so the listeners know i um greatly enjoyed this book and i feel like they should buy it thank you and thank you for everything you've done in the process of this book hey man of course yeah may it be the first of many I tend, I agree. I've been stoked, by the way. This has been going down so far. I hope it continues for a while. Dude, it's been doing really, really good. I get the same... I, I kind of want to maybe reveal like a little trade secret here. 
Um, <laughs> Go for it. Where, but uh, do you believe in jinxes? Only if I'm told to. Okay, so we're not going to believe in a jinx right now, right? Okay, I'm, I'm not going to wood. It's it's all bullshit, whatever. But uh, the book seems to be doing very well. Um, mm. The last book that did really well like this was Gabino's book, Zero Saints. Well, so we, wow, wow. Um, oh, I, I know how well Gabino's book did. Greatly deserved, by the way. Hi, Gabino. Yeah, yeah. He's he's off in Texas somewhere, being muscular. Um, <laughs> well, anyway, like it's it's a little early. You know, it's only a few days in, but I see the book selling. And like, you you get a feeling for these things as you see dozens of these things go out, right? Um, and it seems to be doing pretty well. And I feel like what's interesting is that you and Gabino both, even though this was not your or his intention, you both sort of cultivated, you made yourself valuable within the quote-unquote literary community. Gabino, it was reviews. With you, it's designing covers. And I think it's important to say that what I'm not saying is that the only reason people are buying this book is because Gabino did a bunch of reviews or you did a bunch of covers, but there's something of value in creating all those relationships to the point where people want to read the book that you put out. Does that make well, sense? I see what, I, no, I see what you're saying because I can relate that directly to my relationship with Gabino. I mean, I, I was so – not just because he would release um, review books that I'd written. It, it was I saw just how much work he put into promoting everybody else to the point where whatever his first book was going to be, I was going to buy it. Mm-hmm. I, I might read it and not like it and then that might alter what I do from then on. But sure. at least at that point, I was just so – enamored with Gabino for everything he'd done that I mean I was just going to buy the hell out of whatever he released yeah no totally and it's it's one of Mm. those things where I don't think I don't think you and I don't think Gabino did it with an ulterior motive which is so important it's that extra zen layer like you have to literally drop that ambitious bullshit and just do the thing you know because there's nothing Mm. ambitious about Gabino reviewing a, a fucking, you know, self-published, you know, zombie uh, novel, you know, mm. like he he did it because he just wanted to read the book. Well, and... yeah, I, I, I would put a pretty firm distinction here between Gabino and myself. And this is one that in my mind makes Gabino out much. I mean, he, he as far as I'm concerned, he's far elevated above me because I do do a lot of design work for a lot of authors and a lot of publishers, but they are always paid transactions. Right. They, are, they are customers. I get money for that at the end. Gabino is doing what he's doing. He gets a free copy of the book. That's about it. And and to me, the, the, the selflessness involved in that, and not, not just the fact he's been doing it for so long, I think. A lot of people burn out after a couple of years of doing this sort of thing. He is still doing it. and And that is incredibly incredibly impressive it's weird right it's weird that a a, a real skill that people have now is just the ability to keep doing things Mm. right Mm. it's so rare now isn't it absolutely absolutely and and that's why i find it so impressive and yeah i mean but the but the other thing that should be said about cabina i think we've already gotten this point across but 
yes, I mean, he's got a lot of favor within the community because everything he's done. But he came out of that and he wrote a really fucking good book. Yeah. And and that is ultimately what matters, and that's why he's gonna his next book is gonna sell, right. you know, because he really delivered the goods. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. The, I mean, good books. Obviously, it's it's really important. I think that. Okay, I'm not gonna say any names, but there are people who have put in as much effort as Gabino, and have not seen the returns, and mm. it's because the book is not good. Mm. Well, that there, that that is always going to happen because yeah, you might get some goodwill, but ultimately, if the book isn't good, people are going to be like, "Well, I gave it a go. He earned it. Not going to explore further." Right, right, exactly. Like so, basically, if anybody um, would think that you know Gabino only got his success through his reviewing, I I have an immediate counter example. If anybody's interested, uh, DM me and I'll tell you because I'm not going to do it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but is, um, is there a, is there a way i mean just as an aside just a quick aside is, is there a possibility to have people phone in to to the way that you do podcast it's probably not mm, I, i'm guessing that's probably skype? technology yeah because i guess it's done via skype people would have to no forget what i'm saying forget no it. no 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 it's it's not that way i feel like if i had them call my phone and put them on speakerphone we could have a it would mm. pick up on the it would pick up on my mic so very true actually you can get the um the headphone input jack and connect that to the um auxiliary of the of the computer shut up matt you're not you're not <laughs> entertaining anyone no it's true though that that's actually not a bad idea <laughs> like having a caller because you know you know of course like you know the first five would just be somebody being like you're both gay and then like hanging up really fast right so and then wouldn't we have egg on our face Okay, okay. Uh, what would you do, right, if we were doing that? We had a caller who called in, and the caller was you. Uh, oh, like on some Lost Highway shit? Maybe. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? Or is like... I, I do. I, do. No, I was just... Um, I, 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 every um, thing I've seen written about human trees so far has mentioned um, being Lynchian. And I've, I find that funny. And so when you mentioned Lost Highway, I was like, well, here comes Lynchy boy again. And, you know, nothing against Lynch at all. It's just, it's just I can't escape him right now. Are you a fan of Lynch or, or not? I... I am, no, I would say I'm a fan in as much as I think he's an incredibly talented filmmaker and he's done some incredible films. Uh, I I'm certainly don't exalt him as much as many others seem to, but I think he, he's got talent up the wazoo. So how do you feel about uh, human trees being called Lynchian then? Ultimately, it can get called whatever it wants. I just thought it was interesting that... Well, but, do happened, you, but do you agree with it? I don't personally, but once again, that's because I know my own intentions when I'm writing that book. Um, I, I understand that there's elements in it that are kind of weird, mm -hmm. and um, and that that can very often be uh, make make it easy to to say Lynch, you know. Mm -hmm. So so where do you feel like uh, what you're doing deviates from a Lynchian path? Because what I'm doing, I mean, once again, this is all my own personal perspective, but I, I'm I'm just trying to write really plainly. Uh, in my in my mind, Lynch talks a lot about how important dreams are um, in terms of the creation of his um of his work, and for me, it's the opposite. I, I sort of focus on how important real life is, and that might seem strange when you think of some of the things that happen in it, but I, I really. 
I don't want to contort things into sort of dreamlike knots. I want to, I, I want, I want to basically write a story very straightforwardly. The the what what occurs in the story might be might be unusual, but in, in my mind, I'm just writing a very straight story, which is the name of a David Lynch film. Fuck. No, no, it is. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. But no, dude. I mean, it's it, like I see what you're saying now, and I I get where you're coming from. Um, I think that where people might be making the Lynch connection is that remember that David Foster Wallace uh, essay about Lynch, where I think he's on the set of. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. And he talks yeah. about how uh, Lynch takes the banal and uh, does banal so hard that it becomes surreal, right? To where it's mm. all these little slices of Americana and stuff. Yeah. Well, you no, obviously I, I... don't do that. But, I mean, you know, waiting in a hospital, waiting to pull out of a driveway. Remember that, you well, know? that. that yeah, comes... no, I, I, I do. No, I love the banal. But to, to me, this, this is where I would disagree with... with foster wallace and you know there's no way he can possibly you know yeah that shoot fucking, me down for this that fucking stupid dead bitch is, isn't it funny how dead he is he's, <laughs> he's dead as fuck dead little bitch <laughs> david foster deadest more like <laughs> oh <laughs> god god okay. bl- god bless the dead i love you david i you're it's literally my favorite book ever but you know whatever <laughs> No, basically, okay, this is where I would disagree. Yeah, I, I see what he's saying about Lynch focusing intently on the banal, and and he focuses so hard that it becomes surreal. I, I would say that the banal was always that weird. It's just that we don't tend to focus on it. Anybody, oh. can, fo- anybody can focus on the minutia going on around them, and all of a sudden they'll think, that's pretty fucking weird. I'm, I'm looking at a little space heater I have right now, and, and the more I stare at it, sort of the weirder it becomes it almost becomes like an alien object but it's just no i i, I think that we, within the sort of quoted day and everyday stuff is really weird shit and it, it's not about taking something normal and then turning it into something weird it's it was already fucking weird mm. yeah mm. i mean I, I know a lot of people were talking about that scene in the new twin peaks where guys just mopping the floor for like three minutes i loved it and- so I, you, we just we just talked about how much i love process mm. like i mm. fucking loved watching him sweep a floor i don't know yeah, and- maybe there's something wrong with me dude i don't know no well the thing is basically what you saw was somebody doing something in the amount of time it would take to do it and that there's nothing there's nothing innately weird about that because everything believe it or not takes as long as it does yeah. what is different is that we were forced to watch it yeah yeah God, then, I then it so much but yeah but when you think about it nothing about that scene was made weird it was all just context and the fact that we were being forced to focus on it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and I, I do think that I, I did a tweet that I was I was being cute but I, I said that David Lynch's big trick is that he makes things happen longer than they should right like it's just mm. you know whether it's a pause in dialogue or you know whatever but in a way i feel like i like your spin on it where it's like it's actually not longer than it should happen it's actually probably about as long as it normally does well yeah if anything he was probably holding back right. i mean i mean when was the last time you filmed yourself doing the dishes and then watched the full playback, you know? And if Whoa. you did, when you did watch the full playback, 
and you paid very careful attention to it, I would suggest that what you watched would start becoming very weird, not because of anything added to the activity, but because you're seeing the activity for what it really is. You are blowing my fucking mind right now, where it's it's it's, it's actually like, if, if, if we are, you know, okay, I have to organize about three different thoughts right now, but okay, <laughs> so... Basically, going off the premise that looking at things for what they are creates a kind of surreal surreality, ironically, right? Because that's not actually mm. surreal; it's just hyper real. Mm. Um, I watched. Well, it's not even. It's not even hyper real. It's actually just real. Just real. No, you're right. Yeah, it's not hyper real. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I watched this movie called Heaven Knows What. Have you seen this movie? Mm. I know of the film. I haven't seen it, though. It's the Safdie brothers. They did this good time thing Mm. with uh, Mm. uh, Robert. The the soundtrack is 10 Tricks Point Never, and I'm super excited about it because I'm a big fan. But um, anyway, so Heaven Knows What is basically about teenage heroin junkies in New York City, and Mm. it is extremely realistic. And I was watching it, and I actually got sick watching it. You know, mm. be, just because of the way the film like doesn't dramatize anything, right? It's just all mm. very like this is just the way. And so I'm seeing all these homeless people that I've been around in Portland for the past three years, and I'm seeing just it's almost like it's giving like the backstory to all the strange shit that I see on a daily yeah. basis, you know? Um, but it was, I, I don't know, I feel like. There's a big thought that I'm trying to tease out, but I'm not sure if I'm smart enough to tease it out, where I don't necessarily like hyper quote-unquote realistic shit, uh, because I think that it doesn't necessarily hit the mark, but at the same time, but I feel like there's a way to tie in my love of like process shots. (laughs) I don't know, man. I got like... You just exploded my brain, and there's eight pieces that I'm trying to fit together. I, I, I could offer a potential explanation that maybe would help. Yes, please. Um, when, when we talk about films depicting realism, they, they, quite often it's very cherry-picked realism, and it's and it's still cut in, in such a way where there is drama and there is, is a, an artificiality about the way the narrative is composed. Um, when when you talk about your love of of process, um, you you want to watch a process from A to Z. You just want to watch the production line go and see how it happens. Now there, there's no innate narrative arc in that, other than what you might create for yourself. So real life is more like that process line. Right now, I've just been sitting in front of this microphone for God, nearly ninety minutes, Jesus, and um, and um, in real time, I've just been saying everything I'm saying. I'm Every gesticulation, everything is just in complete real time. It's process as well as. Did, am I making any sense? I thought I had a no, really go, good way to go, describe. No, keep going, keep going, keep going. No, no, but, you're, um, no, you're getting there, you're getting there. So, so, <laughs> that, so but basically, you're not responding to what you're being shown as hyper real because you see the artificiality of it. And, and in fact, when something is portraying itself as real, and there's anything off about that it calls itself out even more than something which is obviously manufactured. So if you bring this idea of, see that, that film, um, Jean Delman, I can't remember the full title. Um, it's, it's, it's a French address, which is the film you were talking about, about the woman who's just doing shit. Mm-hmm. Now I think that that film kind of perfectly melds the idea of process and the idea of narrative because you have to watch her in real time, you know, make meatloaf. 
Mm-hmm. And and I think, ironically, based on what you said, you would absolutely love the fuck out of that. Yeah. Um, and then it, it does have a narrative around. I think that is literally a perfect film up until the ending, which I thought was a bit of a cop-out. A lot of people love it. I'm not going to ruin it. But I personally didn't like the ending. Right. Everything before it, I really think is masterful. And and it really does tie into that idea of process and, and narrative. It, ma- it marries them in such a, a way that it's just compelling. Three-hour movie that feels like it goes for like half an hour. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's uh, like – and I actually do – want to watch that movie as well um because that doesn't fall into my definition of patient shit uh <laughs> but you know what i mean if you think about it in, in terms of uh of of these process things that i'm talking about how often do you get to watch a dude sweep for five minutes straight you can't and, do it you can't just fun- stare at a dude sweeping it depends on how you do it i mean i i know sometimes <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I say that because where I work, it's across from an athletics oval and I will go to lunch and sometimes I'll just sit in the park, which is right near the oval on a bench and I can just stare at activity occurring yeah. on the oval. And there's nothing terribly unusual about a guy just sitting on a bench staring off at an athletics oval. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, 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 um, there is in America maybe. where I, I come know, from, dude. I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, you know, you may be right. Maybe it's, it's the idea that, that scrutinizing somebody doing something so mundane so closely is invasive mm-hmm. like why why would you go up to the dish hand and watch them dry a dish for, for 30 minutes i mean you might be interested but would that be sort of insulting to the dish hand what are you doing mm-hmm. i mean I, I guess one of the um key components of the mundane and the everyday is that it occurs beyond our sense of drama so if we start affording focus to it then I, I guess we enforce an expectation. I know if somebody watched me closely doing something mundane, I, I would change my approach to that to that um, mm. mundane task. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it exists all around us, and and we can focus on it. But I mean, I don't know. It's, it, it's all this sort of stuff fascinates me. But my, my thoughts surrounding it, they always seem I, I, I don't know um, embryonic. Well, I think that one thing that I would like to just kind of get out there is that I'm actually really tired of story as it is right now. I don't mm. like stories with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I think that's why I don't finish a lot of books because mm-hmm. once I sense a, a third act happening, it never, well, not never, but very rarely does it ever feel earned or that it fits or that that's what should be happening. Mm. So I'm very much against... Um, I'm very much for naturalistic process and uh, like I could read the way the opening of some books are. um, I could read that all the way through. Like there's a book by um, Jonathan Ames called I Pass Like Night. It was his first book uh, where, which he wrote uh, when he was, I think, I think he was turning tricks, but I'm not sure. But basically it's a young gay man who's, uh, you know, prostituting himself in New York in the mid eighties, I believe. And the book opens, and he's a prostitute, and the book ends, and he's a prostitute, and things happen in the middle, but there's no change whatsoever. And I love that book, and I love Mm. books like it, Uh, Mm. and I love process stuff where things get done, but we're not forced into this kind of myth structure. I think once, if I want myth, I want there to be dragons and zombies 
<laughs> but I don't want Joseph Campbell's hero arc to be put on a Wall Street day trader. If I'm going to watch or listen to or read something about a Wall Street day trader, I just kind of want to follow them on their day. Does that make sense? Like there's this distinction going on. No, it, I guess. It, it, it does. It does make sense. You, basically, you're, you're after more veracity in the realism depicted. Mm hmm. Yeah, because I, I mean, I feel like if it's if it's going to be realistic, then I don't always want it to be exciting. I I, I don't necessarily want. But if I'm, you know, if I'm signing up to watch dragons fight zombies, then I want to see that shit. That no, sense? that makes sense. Well, one thing, um, a parallel to that that I have is I, I find with a lot of movies, often my favorite part of the movie is is the preamble that occurs before the setup. Just people living their lives before Me the shit too. happens. Me too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I um I really enjoy that, and I often think I just wish this could keep going on until the film ends. Yes. Is. And um, yeah. No, so you're, you go, no, so, you're, yeah. you're saying one hundred percent what I'm saying, dude. Which is hmm. that as soon as shit starts popping off, like you know, when somebody suddenly discovers that this other person is a murderer, what if they just like got away with it? They were always a murderer, and we know, but nobody else knows. And they just live their life, and they go to fucking Applebee's and have a mm. have a fucking steak cooked, probably well done, because you know that's kind of the people that I would write about or listen to. But anyway, the point is, is like, <laughs> like where are all the movies and stuff where where we never get past the first act? It's an hour and a half of first act, and you leave the oh. movie, and you're like, what happened? They're like, I don't know. They just hung out. Was it good? Yeah, it was great. Well shot, well acted. Nothing happened. I don't know. Life is life is kind of just first act. I mean, that's what life is. Uh, if we look at um, I mean, uh, all the ideas. Somebody is suspected of being a killer, so you know somebody tries to prove it. They realize that they kind of can't, and they're sort of bored, and then they sort of stop paying attention to it, and then they start doing <laughs> something else completely unrelated. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And I, that might tie into problems that I've been having with my writing, dude. Is it like? I can't pull anything to any kind of climax, you know, like no kind of like mm. what I'm writing. I'm like, I just kind of like writing about these people doing whatever. Well, that, that honestly is, I, I couldn't, I'm not going to go as far as to say I couldn't stand the final episode of Breaking Bad, mm. but it annoyed me thoroughly how perfectly tied up it was. Me too. Yeah. No, I agree. 100%. Yeah. I feel yeah. like um, it was really satisfying when he had the, the trunk machine gun. Right. Mm. Um, but I mean, you're right. Yeah. And then, you know, he dies perfectly at the end and, you know, the cops are coming in and they play the song and I was like, oh, you know, yeah. I mean, imagine then if Breaking Bad ended, right. Final episode, Walt White gets killed within the first two minutes and then the rest of the episode is just what happens afterwards. <laughs> Dude, that would be so much better. He's so much better. If he was like making I mean, the whole thing sure. to like get the to get the Nazis, and then they came in, they're like, "Hey, what are you doing?" He's like, "Nothing." And then they cap him, and then it just yeah. everything unfolds. Yeah. Well, yeah, and then I mean, I'm sure there are people listening to this thinking, "What fucking wankers?" But <laughs> sure. But like, you know, I just I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes you just want to explore that sort of thing. I, I don't know. I well, it's they're, like. They're, I don't think either of us are, you know, neither of us are like pretentious douches. Like we're both nice people who just like the things that we like. And we're just kind of expressing that sometimes we don't, we don't want 
the fireworks. We just want to see people being nice to each other. <laughs> or well, not. actually, I, I've no because because that ties in. Before I started thinking about this idea of 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 a book or a film that doesn't go beyond the first act, I, I was obsessed. And this this goes right back into me being a teenager, obsessed with movies and all this sort of stuff. Uh, imagine a book. Imagine a movie that has literally no conflict. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I don't, I don't, I don't see why not. I don't see why we can't start making those. Like, I feel like, uh, I feel like Harmony Corinne was made to make those movies. Like Harmony Corinne's violence has always seemed a bit off to me. Yeah, I mean, with Harmony Corinne, um, yeah, I think in many ways you're right there. Uh, it's probably harder to see because of the um, the very willful oddity that he likes to put in front of the camera, but. Um, but yeah, I'd say that in an overall sense, you're probably right. I mean, he always puts weird shit up there, but like Spring Breakers in particular, like I love that movie mm. until the, even the, like when he does the, the violent stuff that's kind of like off camera, I buy that more. But when it tries to be on screen violent, that's when it lost me, even though I mm. kind of get what it was doing with the whole video game thing uh anyway that's that's like a super digression but um but no I, I do think that a lot of filmmakers it would be super freeing to just i don't know man just make an hour and a half movie about people doing stuff well i mean isn't isn't that i mean i don't know for certain but isn't that kind of one of the principles of mumblecore sort of but they still are putting themselves in that structure where there has to be an end you know i'm interested in stuff that that completely rejects the concept of an end you know mm. like this building mm. building building and then we have an end like fuck that mm. like why not just you know what if well like you said like what if the end was at the very beginning and mm. we're just seeing the aftermath like what if it was a whole movie and it was just the funeral for walter white and well, well yeah and and walter white was Obviously, it would be a different character, but it was this guy who became a drug dealer and a drug kingpin, in fact. And then for an hour and a half, we just like a camera was put in the, you know, the the reception area as people paid respects. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because the thing is, there's no, no reason why that couldn't happen. <laughs> there There right. isn't. I mean, I mean, with Basil Ganglia, I remember one of the things I wanted to do was write a book that basically ended at the start. So I, the whole book was a lead up to the introduction. Right, right. And and um, maybe not quite the same thing, but there's still this way of still this idea that endings don't have to be traditional endings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Totally. Yeah. I just. Yeah. I, I do think that. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't. I don't want to beat that horse too much. I guess, but. At the end of the day, why why does why does it always have to end like an ending? Mm. Why can't it end like a beginning? Which is kind of why Sopranos was incredible when it ended the whole show just mid word like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I was I was going to bring that up uh, actually when you brought up uh, Breaking Bad. I was going to be like, how did you feel about uh, the Sopranos ending? Very, very, very positively is the answer to that question. Okay, so. <clears throat> I have a, a, a an extra dimension to add to that. Have you watched Deadwood? I have not watched Deadwood. Um, I had it recommended to me recently, but I haven't seen it yet. Okay, well, I'm gonna 
I won't spoil it too much, but I'll spoil it a little bit. So if you have um, Breaking Bad on one end, which is very neat in a bow, and The Sopranos, which is um, kind of obtuse intentionally, Mm -hmm. uh, Deadwood got canceled after its third season, and I don't think that it knew that it was going to get canceled. But it ends up Mm -hmm. ending in a very, very... So basically, it ends like the like a like a like a frayed piece of string, you know. Mm-hmm. There are all mm-hmm. these little feelers out into these different stories, right? And uh, something very uncomfortable happens. And uh, I think the last thing that the main character says while he's scrubbing a blood stain out of a floor is, "What do you want me to tell you? Something pretty." Right, and then it ends. Mm, mm. It's the end of the whole story, right? Mm. Um, and when I saw that, I was like, "That is my shit!" Like nothing mm. is wrapped. And they didn't do it on. There's something about the fact that they didn't do it on purpose, right? That all yeah. these threads are left open unintentionally, and it was just like it was like a beautiful person who walks into traffic and gets hit by a car at 18 right yes all this all this potentiality is just gone they they were forced into a realistic ending yeah yeah and it was just like she wants or did they want me to tell him something i don't know but that's always stuck with me and everything i've written is like maybe just end there i don't know Mm, no i i'm pretty much on board with you really so uh to wrap up here, because you have been with me for 95 minutes now. We've, we've really been pounding this. Yeah, dude. Well, when we get together, it's it's always good times. Fireworks. Do you want to <laughs> talk about what Human Trees is? Just just for the end. Just for, It doesn't have to be long. Human Trees is... It took me four years to get to this out, but Human Trees is basically um, kind of like a, a, a bit of a follow-up to Basil Ganglia. Completely different stories, but it exists in the same world of stasis. Um, two brothers who have stopped talking to one another for reasons um, that occurred in their past that they don't want to talk about. They're forced into each other's company when they find out that their parents are both involved in something mysterious that threatens their life. So the whole book is set in this unfolding yet seemingly endless and unmoving weight in the hospital and um they're forced to confront exactly why they're there exactly what happened to them as children and and attempt i guess to move on from that in some way so it was a it's it's not necessarily a fun book but um it's i think it's it's the book the world needed (laughs) well i i don't know i don't know if uh I would say it's readable, and I think that readable is an important aspect. You know, you said fun, you know, so you're not, like, sitting there like, wee, you know what I mean? <laughs> but you're also, you're brought from from one moment of, you know, existential dread to the other in a very mm. pleasant kind of mm. way. 
Mm. Well, that I like that. That, that I appreciate that. I mean, I, I want it to be readable. I want it. To, I want the process of reading it to not be necessarily a negative one, but I do also want it to be a slightly exhausting one, which is why I. It's why it's one chapter. I, I sort of want to mirror the the exhaustion of the protagonist by one, one thing that I wish I. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I interrupted. My bad. Oh, it's just not really anything important. Just basically mirror the exhaustion that the reader feels hopefully in some way mirrors the exhaustion that the protagonist feels. It was just like a summation of that. You know, what's so funny is that I couldn't figure it out. And in future editions of the book, I might do this, but I was really trying to figure out how to do drop caps because I just thought it would be a funny joke to have the beginning of the book with a drop <laughs> cap. Uh, like, like it was the first chapter because it goes through the whole thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I really wanted to, but I it, time constraints and shit, and I just wanted to get it out there. But I might do it in in a in a future. I I, I would encourage you. I like that a lot. <laughs> where it's this drop where you're like, okay, chapter one. <laughs> but, uh, I like that. I think like we also just had a conversation there for a second where it was actually like publisher and author for it, like like the friend thing dropped, and I'm like, well, Matt. When you say it's not fun, I, I feel like what you're trying to say is. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you actually think it's probably good to. How many how many situations are there where a publisher is interviewing an author and it's recorded? Uh, I don't know. And most of it is just like, I don't know, dumb. Mm. If, if it does happen, it's not it's not cool. It's not cool like this one. <laughs> <laughs> I am the epitome of cool mm-hmm. oh, is that how you say it in australia no no it's epitome I, I was trying to make it funny oh okay 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 I'm, i i apologize i just i just really don't know how you guys pronounce shit down there so <laughs> it's like epitome really okay right on. <laughs> what a strange mysterious land you come from <laughs> australia is weird dude it's like it's mostly empty space and then mm. y'all are clustered like, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. in what five cities there's, more or less yeah. there's melbourne sydney cairn well i mean so about, so you got melbourne sydney perth adelaide perth, um canberra adelaide. yeah perth, yeah so <laughs> anyway my, my point is what's the deal with australia it's weird i I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. Um, <laughs> Australia is. It's completely it's completely uh, different from the United States, which is by far the most normal country in the entire world. We are. I, I am off. Yeah, blown away by the normalcy of the US of A. I sometimes I, a lot of us Australians do it. Really, we just gather around uh, our wild, wild like our, 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 I've lost my train of thought. I was going to be very, very sarcastic. All you need to know is that. <laughs> well, it's just it's just that this country consistently just has a cool head about stuff. We don't overreact. Mm-hmm. We don't make mm-hmm. impetuous decisions. Right? Like you're serving you're serving size of a spot on. Yeah, yeah, and we just, you know, we just, we just like being better than everybody else, and just mm, sm- mm, also mm. smarter too. We're we're much, much, much smarter, smarter, much smarter, much smarter than yeah. everybody else. Yeah. Well, but, Matt, but we, 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 yes, hello. Oh no! Please, please continue, my friend. As I say, we as the rest of the world need your guidance, and, and we appreciate the guidance that you give. So, 
effortlessly and selflessly. I'm losing my ability to speak. I'm pretty tired, it should be said. Well, I am too. I am too. And I want to say that uh, you're welcome from America to you. Uh, we didn't ask to be these heroes. It was just, it's kind of thrust upon us, you know. With great power comes great responsibility. And uh, yeah, USA, man. But <laughs> on that note, my friend, I love you so much. Thank you for coming on my show and thank that. you for listening to i feel like i rambled through most of it but i'm cool with it whatever it's okay i think no this happened exactly as it should have okay cool well please come back uh even if you don't have a book and uh i love you i love you and thank you and if anybody's still listening at this point well done (laughs) they're listening i know you're listening All right, dude. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye.